Hello and welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Scherzarko, and this is the second half of our conversation about the music of John Williams with Christopher Dole of Arden. Like I said last time, I just loved having this conversation, and in this episode we talk about even more exciting music than in the last one, so I hope you enjoy. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you don't need to necessarily, but I do recommend it as it will give a little bit more context for what we're talking about here. We also finally talk about a glaring omission in the pairing repertoire thus far, Star Wars, so get hyped for that. One disclaimer. One of the pieces we talk about in this episode is JFK, directed by Oliver Stone. While we do mention the homophobia in the film, when we recorded this episode, the whole news about Oliver Stone thinking that Putin's anti-gay propaganda is great and wonderful hadn't come out, I kept this conversation in because I think it's a fascinating discussion about Williams' music, but I am now firmly not a fan of Oliver Stone. I just wanted to give that disclaimer before we began. Thank you, as always, to our patrons, and especially to our producer-level patrons, Emma Cohen, Rena Sarame, Zoo Yorker, and Allison Turi, who are all as elegant as Oregon Pinot Noir. To our advanced producer, Mara Zobrist, who, like Leonardo DiCaprio and Fine Wine, gets better and better as time goes on, and our master patron, Michael Beck, who is even more epic than that final fight scene in The Last Jedi. If you would like to join these magnificent people and all of our other patrons, come check us out at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where there is pairing bonus content at every level. For $5, you can see which cocktails I paired with different characters from The Princess Bride. For $12, you can hear a mini-episode about Breaking Bad. And for $25, you can watch our live stream discussion on the topic of terroir. Plus, so much more, so come check it out. Most of all, as always, thank you for listening and for sharing pairing with your family, friends, and foes. Let's get more people listening in. Without further ado, here is episode 44, John Williams, part two, with Christopher Dole. Now, while Williams is most known for his collaborations with Spielberg and then on Star Wars, he has had a few other pretty notable filmmaker collaborations. He Mm -hmm. did a few Altman's scores for Robert Altman in the 70s, Mm, uh, most notably uh, The Long Goodbye. Uh, Mm -hmm. He worked with Alfred Hitchcock on a movie, on Alfred Hitchcock's last film, Family Plot. But the one we're going to sort of talk about as we move now to the 90s is mm-hmm. Oliver Stone. Yeah. Sort of in the late 80s and through mid-90s, he Williams does a triptych of scores for Stone. He does Born on the Fourth of July. He does Nixon. And the one we're going to really focus on, JFK. Uh, Very cool. Mm-hmm. Now, a uh, a bit of a content warning on this film for uh, viewers who have not, for listeners who have not seen it. There yeah. are some aspects of this film that, even at the time, were criticized as being homophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very sort of problematic. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Um, not a not a perfect movie mm-hmm. by any means. No, and also the. Uh, the theory that is put forward in the film is really not held up by history. In yeah, fact, the yeah. uh, sort of the case that gets brought in the film by Kevin Costner's character against Tommy Lee Jones' character, the real case was so was, the real trial was basically a farce, and it took the jury less than half an hour to acquit right. Clay Shaw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think um, I remember that. Yeah, so it's like so def- it doesn't hold up in yeah in some regards, but it is an astounding technical achievement, astonishing. It's maybe I would say one of the best shot films ever because the mm. cinematographer Robert Richardson he uses thirty five millimeter film, sixteen mm-hmm. millimeter film, Super mm-hmm. Eight 
video, still photography, black and white, color, uh, makes it all feel of the piece. The editors are sometimes editing together three or four different timelines into a single scene, and you can follow every single one of them. It's like an astounding technical achievement. And sort of like, even if it's not accurate, it really does evoke that feeling of we can never know what happened. There is something being kept from us. And a huge part of that is William's score. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now, um, to talk a little bit about the normal process of film scoring, usually what happens is the film is shot. The director and editor or whoever's editing the film takes it together. They put together a rough cut using what's called source music so mm-hmm. or, or temp music where it's like, okay, I want, I'm going to put like Lucas on Star Wars, put like Holst and Stravinsky and things like that underlying it. So Williams would know the kind of feeling that he wanted to evoke. That didn't happen with JFK. Hmm. This is because Williams was working on another film at that time, Hook, that looked like it was going to take up a lot more of his time because Hook was originally supposed to be a musical. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. (laughs) I can see that. I can Mm -hmm. definitely see it being made a musical. Yeah. Yeah, originally... uh, there's this songwriter, Leslie uh, Riscus, who Williams has worked with from time to time over his career, uh-huh. who was going to come in and write songs that Williams was going to score. And for various reasons, that fell apart. But sure. it was like, Williams was like, okay, I'm, I want to do JFK. I want to work on this. It was a thing he was actually very passionate about. But it's like, but uh-huh. because this thing looks like it's going to be a musical, this is going to take so much more of my time. Right. Especially right when you're going to be finishing your cut and when I would normally come in to do scoring. So, right. So here's what happened instead. Um, hmm. So Williams went to the set of JFK in New Orleans while they were filming. And uh-huh. he watched like a lot of early footage. He watched them film. He sat down with, Stone, with Oliver Stone and mm-hmm. sort of reviewed everything. And then he wrote six tracks based on what he had seen. And Mm. Stone and the editors cut to the score where they would normally have like the temp music to um, to say, okay, this is the feeling. They're like, we have the final score. Let's edit the film to fit the score. That's so interesting. mm Mm-hmm. And it, it works really effectively. And like the music yeah. that that Williams came up with for it is gorgeous. Like his main theme yeah. that sort of symbolizes JFK is like. Like, it's just so evocative. Yeah, it's really gorgeous. You know, and like in the film, it has, that theme has these sort of military drums underlaying it. And yeah. you really sort of like it's the evolution of his Americana sound in, yeah. to sort of some of his more emotionally mature, some of his more mature scores, things like sort of like it's, it's almost like a stopgap between things like the Reavers in 1941 and then his more serious scores like Schindler's List, like Saving right. Private Ryan. Right. Yeah, it is kind of like an in-between step. Yeah. Oh, that's that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Then sort of like to sort of contrast with that sort of like... the That sort of music, you get this sort of like... Partic- you get this sort of like... These sort of like... This theme that's like that's the assassin the assassination theme is just sort of those eleven it's like eleven notes those two notes repeated very fast in a right. sort of rhythm 
it's almost like Stravinsky. Like mm, it's yeah. like in its big track, the motorcade where the assassination happens, you get this theme that has sort of been bubbling in the underscore for the whole score. It suddenly just erupts throughout the orchestra, like something out of the rite of spring. It's like this horrible volcanic primal mm, thing mm-hmm. bursting forth from like America's id in this act of violence. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. Yeah, it's really true. It takes that, it, it creates that real tension. Mm-hmm. Captures that moment in history mm-hmm. in, in a way, which I, I was not there, but I heard it was a pretty bad moment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was it the best? Was not the it best. Was like, it was like pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> okay, so this makes me think of a few different things. One thing is not a wine thing, but... Just this idea of working, like, the score kind of Mm -hmm. dictating how they filmed reminds me of, as an actor, like, the process of what we call either working from the inside out or Mm. working from the outside in. And to me, you know, and so, like, for me, I'm a pretty cerebral actor. And Mm -hmm. so what I tend to do is uh, work from the inside out. And I, like, conceive Mm -hmm. of an internal world for my character. And this this is not necessarily as much for voice acting, though it can be it can be a little bit. Actually, no, it can be because like if you make a if you make a choice in like your voice, mm-hmm. for example, if I were to decide that like my character had a very particular voice or or accent or something, that would be considered more working from the outside in. Mm-hmm. And I have found that while I tend to work from the inside out, sometimes working from the outside in is really effective and mm-hmm. actually helps create a more fully fleshed, organic feeling mm-hmm. character. And so that so that's just what that reminded me of. And I was trying to think, because I've been trying to figure out what this reminds me of in the wine world. And the only thing I can think of is kind of, it's a negative thing, <laughs> or it's, <laughs> it's considered a negative thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the way they built the score and did this was it was a bad process mm-hmm. um so i, I just want to be clear that that's not what i'm trying <laughs> to say but so in uh you know there's like certain certain big huge wineries where what they're going for is consistency of product while you know quote unquote the great the really good wineries want their wines to be different every vintage and they want they want that to express what the year was like but some places they make their they make their money because their product is consistent Mm -hmm. and um and so in that sense it's kind of working backwards Mm -hmm. we're like here let's take the wine that we made last year and try to make it oh actually here's a slightly slightly less negative connotation my old boss used to be a a consultant for this company that the wines they produced were called replica. Hmm. And this I thought was actually really interesting. And what they did was they take they they took certain they still exist, so they take certain like big brand name wines mm-hmm. like like Kendall Jackson Chardonnay mm-hmm. or oh, they do Joel Gott Cabernet. So like big, big names in in the wine industry, which, you know, and it's not that anything is wrong with those wines, mm-hmm. but they're, they're taking those wines, studying them and then literally recreating them in a lab, mm-hmm. like like with with real grapes and stuff. Oh, sure. But just that's mm. that's the future. That's unfortunately probably the future. Yeah, no, we're we're not talking about Attack of the Clones here. We're talking. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's next episode. But, but anyway, I thought that's kind of a cool cool thing that they do actually mm. to oh, show. Yeah. Like how it, it's more to show how much science is a part of winemaking mm-hmm. than. To, to like disrespect any of the other winemakers. So I don't know. I, I just thought of that. I thought that was kind of, kind of interesting. Uh, um, you know, this was something we, we talked, uh, we talked a little bit about before, but with the first thing you said was that yeah. what you were talking about with like the Oak chips and. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's, so that's often a big part of a big part of like the consistency of product one very easy way to do that is by making your wines really, really oaky mm-hmm. because 
the oakier it is, the less you can really taste the fruit and taste what's going on with the grapes themselves. Mm. So if something is wrong with a vintage or wrong with the grapes, what kind of lazy winemakers will do is just like throw oak chips in the barrel, (laughs) (laughs) which is... And I forget what we were talking about it in context with last time, but yes, mm-hmm. um, that is a thing that that wine some winemakers do, and it is not uh, generally thought upon well in the wine community. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually maybe I was talking about like Warhorse and like the yeah, overdone. <laughs> yeah the, the overdone. <laughs> yeah, so for Warhorse, just. Pair it with the oak oak chippiest wine you could find. Exactly, I guess. exactly. The, the, the oak chippiest. Well, and what what frustrates me so much is that sometimes mm-hmm. because some winemakers know that people like that style, mm-hmm. they'll charge a lot of money for it, oh. even though it's the way they made it was really cheap. Oh. So that that is frustrating. So yeah, it's that's why I I always encourage people, you know. Ask your local wine shop retail assistant what they've tasted and what they like because they will usually know what's good for the value. Because just because it's expensive doesn't mean it's good. And just because it's mm-hmm. cheap doesn't mean it's bad. So mm-hmm. this has been my PSA. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, oak chips, not great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing against like oaky wines. Like you can like wines that are aged in oak barrels. But if it's if it's overdone, you can usually tell because you can't. You can, it just tastes like vanilla. Mm-hmm. Sort of like those really oaky Chardonnays I was talking about. Right, right, right. They can, they they sometimes do that with with Chardonnay too. Oh, poor Chardonnay. Anyway, yes. Okay, so those are the, that was my somewhat convoluted thoughts. Uh, surrounded that. Oh yeah, let's talk about let's talk about Oliver Stone, JFK. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's 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 really cool. It's a really way cool way of looking at it as the process. Yeah, because I do. I mean, part of why I created this podcast is that mm-hmm. you know I do see winemaking and the consumption of wine. It's a, it's a process mm-hmm. just like any artistic process, and mm-hmm. everybody does it slightly differently. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of components that go into it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, cool. Yeah. One might say that the music for films is like the vessel in which wine is aged. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I just came up with that, and I'm going to stick with it. Yeah, let's commit to it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. At least for many of John Williams' mm-hmm. scores, because so often his music just kind of holds the movie in place. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Anything else about JFK? No, no, other... Other than that, the the music is probably the best part of it. Yeah, maybe? the music, uh, the cinematography, and the editing the cinematography is, are is all fantastic. sort of like, like, so if you want to sort of like learn about film as a technical craft, mm-hmm. I would recommend giving it a watch just sort of for that because it's such an it's an amazing achievement on those particular levels. Very cool. So now let's move on to the 2000s. All right, let's do it. So in uh in the sort of between the summer of 2001 and the winter mm-hmm. of 2002, Williams goes through one of the busiest times of his career. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he starts out with AI, artificial intelligence. Yep. Remember that. Mm-hmm. Then we get a little film with a little theme that goes like. Yeah, that, that <laughs> sounds familiar. Yeah. I, mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. I can't think of what it could possibly be. <laughs> yeah, uh, a little film by the name of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, yep, yep. Then in May 2002... We get Star Wars: Attack of the Clones. A couple yep, of months. That. Yeah, a couple of months after that, we get Minority Report, and wow. then wow. about uh, sort of five months later, we get we get Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And so, mm-hmm. like you know, those five scores, they all have their they all definitely have their strengths, particularly mm-hmm. uh, his. Particularly, I would say the first three of those are all really terrific mm-hmm. scores. 
butts. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all, um, you know, they're all sort of like sci-fi fantasy type things. Sure. And you can, because they're coming in sort of like so close to each other, you can definitely hear like some reused motifs. I'm pretty sure there is one motif that actually appears in Attack of the Clones Minority Report and Chamber of Secrets. <laughs> that's sort of like a sort of like conspiracy thing that's like da 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 dum bomb. That I think you could hear in yep. all three of those movies. Yep. yep. Um, he got a little lazy. He yeah, was busy. Yeah, he's he's busy, he's lazy. People are like, well, this is all, you know, really good. Like AI in particular. Yeah. He's doing AI some was really really interesting stuff with dissonances and mm-hmm. sort of like taking on his childhood, the sort of childhood type scores and making it darker and more minor. And like, but is he sort of running on gas? Yeah. Or is he running on fumes at this point? Right. And then in December, 2002, you sit down to a little film called catch me if you can. And the opening credits start up and we get, and we are greeted with a Williams who has not come out to play in decades. Yeah, I love this score. It might it's it's up there with my favorites if it is not mm-hmm. my favorite it is so good it's unbelievable it's yeah. um williams is going back to uh his days with uh, henry mancini when he would he was the session pianist for him the guy who played the famous peter gunn that's right Yeah, Williams is the guy who does that iconic ostinato. He's on the charade score. He's uh, he's on a whole bunch of uh, Mancini scores. He's going back to his yeah. like initial jazz training, like the mm-hmm. days when he was uh, when he was known as Johnny Williams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a Johnny Williams score. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's also Absolutely. sort of. Very delightfully, if you ever want, if you ever listen to people talking about working with Williams, you'll learn that he's such like an old like jazz guy. He calls everyone baby. Like when he was working on like J.J. <laughs> Abrams and Ryan Johnson on the Star Wars sequels, he would call yeah. them baby. Like when he was working <laughs> with them, that's like he's just like this super like cool like jazz cat. Who's that's it, so funny because yeah. it's so not what I would think of. No, him being <laughs> no, when he's sort of just casually working. Like that, that's what he does. That's so funny. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, baby. I like I like thinking of him and JJ Abrams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's just like be cool, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yes, so catchy if you can. It just like right from minute one where you've got that incredible vibraphone saxophone theme with the uh the anim with those animated main titles that are just like i mean those main titles are their own film they're their own story totally they're incredible yeah and he's like he's just telling this story where it's like the guy is consistently like like he's in this box But, like, he tries to get out, and it's like, it's like he keeps getting caught, and he keeps getting caught, and, um, yeah, and it's just such a great little bit of musical storytelling. Absolutely. And it's like, but at the same time, he's doing a couple of things that are evolving some of the, uh, things he's been known for as well. It's mm-hmm. very interesting directions, because... You know, Catch Me If You Can is a very playful score. Um, Yeah. Because, you know, the film, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is this teenager who runs away from home after his parents are getting a divorce. And he realizes that he is very good 
at convincing people that he is a person of authority, whether it's a pilot, a doctor, a lawyer. And so he becomes like one of the 20th century's greatest con men. And what William Score does is it never forgets that he's a teenager. So there's this theme called the float that is sort of like the theme for his cons. Now, to go, li- mm. I'd say go listen to that theme, then listen to the uh, Harry's Wondrous World theme from the first oh. parter, the first Potter, which is a very sort of like, I think you mentioned it as making you really think of like Christmas. It's like the da 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 bum do 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 do. So it's yes. the, yeah, it's this very sort of light theme. It's very like the the instrumentation between the float, the sort of the con theme, and that theme mm-hmm. from the first Potter is almost identical. So yeah. he's using that sense of like childhood adventure and wonder as sort of like this is what the DiCaprio character is thinking of his cons. It's like this totally. is how he thinks of it as this sort of great adventure that he's having sort of this really exciting time. And it's also, catch me if you can, is a Christmas movie. One of the major overriding threads of the film is That's that right. DiCaprio will call the Tom Hanks character who's the agent chasing him every Christmas. Yes. And and also for those of you who don't know, this this is based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Frank Abagnale I, Jr. Yeah. Yes, that's right. That's right. Crazy stuff. Yeah. If mm-hmm. you haven't seen the movie or you don't know the story, go watch the movie and then look him up because mm-hmm. it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. That is so cool. And you, and you pointed out, yeah, pointing out that it is a Christmas movie in many ways. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, totally mind blown. Because mm-hmm. I do think of that theme in Harry Potter as like the Christmas theme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it always starts playing when they're when when mm-hmm. like it starts snowing at Hogwarts. Yeah. So <laughs> so it's so, yeah, it, it's got the sort of like light, those very light instruments. It's very airy it's very optimistic and it's like there's sort of like a real sort of joyful playfulness to it but at the same time you know talking about the divorce of his parents the other major theme of the film is called sort of recollections the father's Mm. theme Mm -hmm. which is this very very dark very melancholy theme so what you end up getting between like the jazz and the float and this theme, once you combine these all together, you get what's essentially like a grown-up version of Williams' sort of scores about childhood. It's a score that is sort of reckoning with that sort of sense of adventure and realizing you can't sort of keep living like that. Like you have to grow up. And um and it's also sort of the case for sort of for Spielberg as well as a mm. filmmaker in this film like I would honestly argue that you could you could make a case that Close Encounters and Catch Me If You Can are the two most personal films mm. he's ever yeah. made cuz you know Close Encounters is sort of at the time a guy sort of breaking from his family to fulfill a sort of greater destiny whether it's going with God or about an artist or like mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And, you know, Spielberg was really has a lot of sort of fraught family history uh, with his father in particular that you could sort of see coming through that film. And then Catch Me If You Can is sort of him reconciling that and realizing mm. that um, you know, sort of the light adventurous stuff that I've been doing for most of my life, you know, what's the, va- what's been the value of it? What yeah. sort of have I, that I kind of have needed to grow up over these years. And so sort of by this point he has, you know, he's, he's certainly married. He's, he's with Kate Capshaw. He has certainly done films like Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan at this time. So it's not like this, it's not like all his serious films come after Catch Me If You Can. Right. But it is him sort of reckoning with that change that he's had to go on over these years. It's, 
it's sort of the the Peter Pan thing that he's been mm-hmm. dealing with in films like Close Encounters and of course Hook and like E.T. and things like that and sort of realize in him kind of putting that behind him. Totally. Yeah. Getting getting over that little Peter Pan complex. No, I love that. And I and it's not something that I would have really thought about otherwise because mm-hmm. those those films are so very different. Mm-hmm. But they are in many ways kind of connected mm-hmm. like in in Spielberg's body of work mm-hmm. that's really that's really cool so i just wanted to say real quick for catch me if you can the wine that immediately came to mind for mm-hmm. me is uh oregon pinot noir <laughs> which is Possibly, since we've been talking mostly about American wines, um, even though not all of these films are necessarily like quintessentially American, mm-hmm. um, but a, but a lot of Williams' music really evokes that for me, and especially oh, yeah. because, because "Catch Me If You Can" is so jazzy, which mm-hmm. is such an American mm-hmm. form of music, and to me, and you know, like it's smooth and it's sexy. And to me, uh, Oregon Pinot Noir would be what I would want to drink while watching this movie mm-hmm. or listening to the music. It's smooth. It's light. Um, but most Oregon Pinot Noirs like have a lot of complexity to them. Mm-hmm. They're, the most famous region in Oregon is called the Willamette Valley. And the wines from there, are they can be just some of my favorite wines in the world however they they because at this point willamette is pretty pretty prestigious they Mm -hmm. can be quite expensive Mm -hmm. always happens and so (laughs) yeah i was actually um at the at the grocery store yesterday trying to pick out a a wine to be drinking yeah during this and drinking i'm just i found just like a nice uh sort of tuscan wine Ooh, but lovely my yeah, favorite but i was looking very carefully at those uh willamette valley yeah uh, ones and it's like and oh boy those are <laughs> a little out of my price range yeah, yeah 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 there there are some that are not outrageously expensive mm-hmm. but not many at least not from not from the willamette valley mm-hmm. um however there's some other areas in oregon that have really good uh, that make really good Pinot Noir as well that are not quite as famous, not considered quite as quote unquote, you know, good, but but they're they're really excellent and can get really close. And one that I discovered um, a little while ago is one called Foris, F-O-R-I-S, and it's from the Rogue Valley of mm-hmm. Oregon, which... I had never really heard of before, so I was like, eh, this could, this could, you know, be really terrible, but I'm going to give it a try, and it was really good. It really reminded me of the Willamette uh, Pinots, and I thought that also being from the Rogue Valley, that works very well with uh, Catch Me If You Can. Oh, yeah. It's very roguish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I highly, I highly recommend that. I also have another one that I haven't tried yet, but I think it's called Cloud Veil which looked interesting. I forget where it's from, but it's not from the Willamette Valley. But it, it also, these were like somewhere between 15 and $20 a bottle, which for me is like, that's reasonable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, anything over $20 a bottle, because I don't get my discount anymore, um, <laughs> <laughs> is, is, is like, okay, is this going to be a special occasion? Hey there, Emma from the future here. Just wanted to let you all know that I was not super impressed by that Cloud Veil Pinot Noir I mentioned, but I couldn't find an elegant way to cut it out of the audio, so this is me here telling you that it's not my favorite because I would feel irresponsible if I didn't. But, so yeah, so I'm always looking for good value stuff. And uh, as you could argue, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is in Catch Me With You Can. He's uh, always (laughs) looking to... uh, you know, make a buck. Mm-hmm. It's also <laughs> just, and just to shout him out for a second, that I think is my favorite performance of his. It, I remember because I think that maybe he did, did he do Gangs of New York before that? It, or was this, it, it, or they were they like literally, around the same time. They literally came out within five days of each other. That's right. That's right. And, but we, I remember we hadn't seen him in anything for like, five years or something yeah yeah and suddenly he came back and was like this great actor and it was Mm -hmm. like what happened (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
But yes, I, I agree. I think that is up there with my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performances. I love him in The Departed, too. Yeah, That's he's great in The Departed. He's great favorites. in Wolf of Wall Street, but... I think yes. the thing about him and Catch Me If You Can is he, that's one where he is using everything that he can do. Yeah, no, it's it's a phenomenal film. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's it's wonderful. The, every, from the score to the acting, it's to... a great script. It's yeah, it's a great looking movie too. The costumes and yeah. like production design is so colorful and so evocative of the time. It's it really, really is. Okay, before we talk about our next and final John Williams score, let's take a little break so you can hear about our sponsor for this week, ZipRecruiter. Remember how in the last episode we talked about how Steven Spielberg played clarinet on one of Williams' scores? Well, imagine that Johnny didn't have such a close butt and he was short a clarinet player. Well then, he could have posted a job on ZipRecruiter. Want to hire top talent for your company? Try ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience and actively invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash pairing, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash P-A-I-R-I-N-G. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now back to the show. I think we have one more to talk yes, about. Yes, we do. One final score. Oh, it nice. is finally time to talk about Star Wars. And... Yes. We could talk about any of them. Any we of could. like and I particularly want to shout out um Empire Strikes Back. Um mm-hmm. cuz that was that's my pick for my favorite Williams score. Uh one of sort of my big moments as a kid with Williams was my parents getting me the the two disc complete soundtracks mm. that they released in conjunction with the special edition. They finally released the complete score. I wore out my set, the second disc for Empire. Nice. <laughs> yeah. But the one we're going to talk about is a masterpiece of a score for a masterpiece of a film, The Last Jedi. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. I was so glad when you decided on this one because, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's hard to pick a favorite Mm -hmm. film in the Star Wars franchise. But Mm -hmm. if I had to pick, it would probably be Empire Strikes Back. Mm -hmm. But I I love both of these most recent, Mm -hmm. or I should say, episode uh, Mm -hmm. seven and eight. Mm -hmm. Also love Rogue One. But I... Mm-hmm. Was I loved the Last Jedi, and I was very upset, and I still am very upset with people who disagree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but it is an incredible achievement of composition because, first off, there's a lot of things we can talk about with this one. Mm-hmm. The first yeah. thing I want to talk about is that it, in addition to sort of functioning as its own score. And we're actually going to talk a little bit about how a Star Wars score functions in its film. But this, in addition to being its own film, it's also functioning as essentially the 40th anniversary score for the entire series. And, like, you've got basically 40 years worth of themes being deployed throughout the film got Luke's theme, you've got Ray's theme, you've got Kylo's two motifs, you have new themes for Rose and for Admiral Holdo, the Imperial March and the Emperor's theme cameo, Yoda's theme shows up, you've got the Luke and Leia theme, the Han Solo and the Princess theme, Leia's individual theme, the Here They Come, TIE Fighter music, you have the March of the Resistance, you have the Force theme, and and that's just major themes. That's just yeah. major themes that oh get sort of deployed with new 
elaborations and new sort of like reflections on these themes and and it all still feels completely of a piece it so does it so does Mm -hmm. and and so many of those themes are just like at least for me like subconsciously ingrained in my mind Mm -hmm. again talking about what they subconsciously evoke that i you know watching the movie i don't even I'm, i'm not even thinking about it but like mm-hmm. what, now that you're saying that, I'm like, oh yeah, I can hear all of those themes in my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and it's like it's amazing, like how many different things those themes can evoke. Like you've got the the force theme, the and it's like that. This is my favorite theme that Williams has ever written because it is so malleable. It can be like, you can have the sort of like this reflective Mm -hmm. or you can do right. Got sort of, or you can do the sort of like the March version that shows up at the end of a new hope. You have choral versions of it. It can, it can basically be any emotion that Williams wants it to be, and that's not the case for every theme. Yeah, yeah. no, that's that's really true. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a really fun Easter egg with the Force theme in this particular Ooh. film that we're gonna talk about uh, a little later. But one of the other reasons I chose this film, this is the only Star Wars score that you can watch it. Star Wars film that you could watch in an official score only version. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember you told me that last time and I was mm-hmm. like, I need to find this immediately. Yeah. So um, it's through a uh, site called uh, Movies Anywhere. And Movies Anywhere. Yeah. Okay. And it's free if you own the film either in Blu-ray or uh or digitally is you awesome. go there uh you sign up and you go through the sort of things to make sure the film is on there and yeah. then you can go and watch the film with just score no dialogue no sound effects just wow. score that's amazing and you can absolutely follow the movie emotionally just from what he is scoring oh. Oh, I'm sure. I'm mm-hmm. sure you can. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, now in terms of like how Star Wars scores sort of work in the context of their film, Williams is basically the third person omniscient narrator of yeah. the movies. Totally. Like, you know, scores, sometimes they're just atmosphere. Like Johnny Greenwood is a composer who his scores are like the first person narrator, which is interesting um right (laughs) yeah yeah danny elfman is a guy who will like i'm gonna give you what this character sounds like this is this isn't even just like their theme this is what they sound like right Right. um so and williams is a guy who is particularly in these films like a lot of his themes will be like the idea of this thing like in et I'm going to give you the idea of flying in Close Encounters. I'm going to give you the idea of saying hello. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and in this film, he's like, okay, I'm going to give you the idea of the force. I'm going to give you the the idea and excitement of being in a space battle. I'm going to Mm. sort of, I'm going to tell you how Luke feels. I'm going to tell you how Ray feels. I'm going to tell you like by which Kylo motif I'm using, which side of his struggle is he on? Um, I'm going to tell you if Yoda is being a little stinker or if he's being the wise, uh, (laughs) the sort of wise Jedi master. Um, right. I'm going to tell you musically how Luke and Leia's relationship is different from Han and Leia's relationship. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, it's almost, he's almost the guiding artistic voice. In many ways. Mm-hmm. And because he's the only one mm-hmm. who, well, I mean, I know that like George Lucas has been mm-hmm. involved with every film. Mm-hmm. But he's the 
kind of like the the thread through mm-hmm. all of these films. Yeah, and it it sort of in a way a lot of that through all of those themes being deployed and even with the new stuff that comes to the head in the Last yeah. Jedi. Absolutely. Let's then get into some of the specific new things that the Last Jedi introduces. Sure. First off, there's Canto Bite. Which, That's right. <laughs> yeah, where if you think Williams can't add a new type of music to Star Wars, a completely new genre of music, like That's right. think again, because yep. <laughs> suddenly, out of nowhere, when we get plunged into this casino, we get this amazing samba piece. That's right. <laughs> that is yeah. where he even quotes like the, you know, the famous like the ostinato from the Aquilero de Brazil that there he's just totally it is just like yeah I could do this at Star Wars like yeah I'm gonna, why not yeah I'm just gonna go crazy for a second and yeah <laughs> do this and also very amusingly he he briefly also quotes his own score for the long goodbye. In this oh, that's sequel. funny. He's like, yeah, you got to stop me. I'm having fun here. Yeah. He's like, how many scores have I written? Yeah. I can reference myself at this point. Yeah. 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 It's being like played in a, in like a coffee bar, like right before a bunch of, Space horses crash through it. Yep. yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's like, I'm just going to throw in this quick musical gag because I can. And like, no worries. No worries. Yeah. Um, oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, so it's like, yeah, even it's like he's still having fun with it decades later. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta. How do you keep it fresh that long? Mm-hmm. You know? Other, yeah. other than, you know, in like mm-hmm. folding in these new themes. Yeah. But. But, like, you gotta have fun with it. Like, it oh, is yeah. Star Wars. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sort of particularly uh, Rose's theme, which is called uh, The Rebellion is Reborn, is really gorgeous. It's a, Yeah. It's the kind of theme that you can tell when Williams has a great deal of affection for a certain right. thing or a character like, you can really tell the difference between when he's just like, okay, uh, this thing sort of needs a theme. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my job and give it this theme. And then something that has a lot of emotion invested mm-hmm. to it. And Rose's theme is extremely emotive. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I genuinely cried twice the first time I saw The Last Jedi just because of deployments of that theme. The first time there's that gorgeous shot of all the space horses running on the beach and her theme has sort of reached his, its apex. And it's yeah. like, and it's like, you realize she has, she has put her like vision into action of like yeah. putting a fist through this lousy, beautiful town totally, and freeing totally. this thing, these things that sort of gave her such joy. And it's like, she has achieved her dream. And mm. like, I found that, extremely emotional and sort of also was able to tell like just that like oh yeah this is her theme and he's going all in on it and then the second time uh and the in the climax at the battle of crate there's that astounding shot of where the camera is just looking straight down and the uh the space speeders are at the bottom of the screen. There's streaks of red behind them flying yeah. towards the top of the screen. And like, there's no sound effects. It's just the march going at yeah. full blast. And then it cuts to the inside of her cockpit. And she's put the, she's put her necklace there in front of her that mm. sort of symbolizing her sister and the, the feet and her theme starts playing. And it's like, it's just like, what a character journey. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. So good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like, you like basically the last hour of this um, score is, it is a symphony where yeah. he's just sort of summoning up all these different themes and melodies and just deploying them one after another and having them in conversation with each other. And I think the sort of, the apex of that is a track called 
the spark, mm. which is when after sort of the battle, the initial battle part has gone down, all of the speeders are destroyed. Uh, Rose and Finn have crashed and they've sent the uh, sort of communication out and sort of no one is coming. And even Leia is like, everyone has lost all hope. Yeah. And then she looks up and sees a hooded figure and it's Luke Skywalker. And we get finally, like after something like 34 years, we at last get the return of the most beautiful theme in all of Star Wars, mm -hmm. the Luke and Leia theme. The And it's just so. It's so gorgeous. And like, mm -hmm. ugh, makes me want to cry just hearing it right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As, like, we just get that gorgeous scene between them that, you know, the first. This theme has only ever been used once before in the actual films for the scene right. on the bridge in Endor where Luke says to Leia, hey, you're my sister. And that's right. It's not it's not the best scene in the, it's not the best scene in all the movies. <laughs> no. So it's like to finally get it in like a scene that is worthy of how emotive it is, how lyrical, how how much weight is behind this theme is mm. and and then um as luke places sort of a thing in leia's hand that um is like a final sort of token and we get sort of the, the these transitional chords that are like and then The Luke, the Han and Han Solo and the princess, yeah. the as it turns out to be the dice from the Falcon, right? Ugh. And it's just so beautiful. Heartbreaking. And then, unbelievable crescendo as Luke yeah. sort of the last Jedi m marches out to face uh, his destiny and talk about sending chills down my spine uh. yeah and, and so here's the force theme easter egg so yes. the most famous version of the force theme is probably the throne room it's either the binary sunset or the throne room version from the triumphant throne room version from the end of uh, a New Hope. Yeah. So that version, the throne room version, is in F minor, and because it, mm -hmm. it's like C F A flat. So the music that when Luke walks out is F C A flat. It's uh -huh. the same chord in the same arrangement as that huh. theme so it's like <laughs> that's so cool and then there's one other famous star wars theme that is in like the sort of three notes one sort of a central note one below one above mm -hmm. and it is So it's like Williams combines those two mm -hmm. 
to give oh, us yes. that it's amazing like that unbelievable crescendo at the at the end of the spark that when you oh listen yeah when you listen to it that's a piece you turn all the way up yep, <laughs> yep. it's oh man it is so good it is so good yeah as it just builds and builds and builds until you get that breathtaking shot where you've got luke on one side you have the entire first order army on the other side of the screen and yeah. from how they place the angle, he towers over the army. Even yeah. like those those giant walkers, it's like forces and just enormous army. And yet in that moment, he is greater than all of them. He is. It's all about Luke in that moment. Yes. Mm-hmm. Ugh, I love it. Mm-hmm. Now I definitely want to go watch that. <laughs> and the and the music really does play such a huge part in mm-hmm. in that last mm-hmm. in those last moments there. Mm-hmm. And again, like I don't even necessarily think about it while it's happening, mm-hmm. but uh, it's so good. My 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 just my quick fun fact was that Winston and I at our wedding when we, you know, there's like us. I guess there, you know, we were supposed to have a song that we like came mm-hmm. out to at the reception, <laughs> um, and we chose that final uh, piece of music from the end of A New Hope. <laughs> <laughs> nice, that's yeah. a good one. <laughs> it was pretty great. It was mm-hmm. pretty great. Um, it was one of the top moments of my life, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. But then, okay, so I'm just thinking about so. There's a lot to unpack here, but uh, just a couple mm-hmm. wine thoughts. The first one is that, you know, talking about all of these different themes coming together um, into mm-hmm. one harmonious piece of music, that reminds me of this kind of phenomenon in winemaking uh, mm-hmm. called uh, making field blends. Mm-hmm. So basically it's when like a wine is a mixture of like 10 to 20 grapes or something like that. Like they don't Mm -hmm. even bother putting the names of the grapes on the label or really Mm -hmm. telling you what they are because there's just so many of them going into it. Mm -hmm. Um, And a couple of notable examples of that are one of my favorites is an Austrian white wine Hmm. called, get ready for my German, uh, Gemixtersatz. Gemixtersatz, I believe is how it's pronounced. Gemixtersatz. Sots. Sots. Okay. Sots. Yeah. <laughs> God, I hope I didn't say anything really uh, offensive. Yeah, right yeah. Then. <laughs> who knows? Who knows what you just said in German? Um, <laughs> we're sorry. We're sorry. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that's usually a really kind of light, dry white wine. And my favorite producer of that one is Ingrid Groys. She's an amazing mm-hmm. winemaker in Austria. And then there's lots of other winemakers that make just what they call field blends. One that I remember in particular is a winemaker from the Southern Rhone that I got to meet in mm-hmm. Southern Rhone Valley in France. So around like where Cote de Rhone's are coming from, mm-hmm. he makes a field blend. Um, and the name of his winery is called Chateau Montfalcon. And it's just a blend of eight different red grapes or I'm not, not just eight. I think it's like 16 different red grapes or something like that. And yet mm-hmm. it's really delicious. So that, so that was the first thought that I had. The second thought that I had is, you know, talking about how this film is like the culmination of 40 years worth of work and music for John mm-hmm. Williams. And that just makes me think of, you know, like the concept of aging wine mm-hmm. and how, I mean, not all wine is meant to be aged, but if a wine can stand to be aged, often, you know, like if you drink it when it's young, it's still really good. But if you wait, you know, and open it 40 years later, <laughs> it's, it'll be like that moment that yeah. you're talking about at the end of the spark and that crescendo and just mm-hmm. being like, oh, my God, this wine is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And since I've been mostly talking about American wines, the most notable example of American wines that can stand to be aged are California Cabernet Sauvignon. And I've had some aged cabs that 
Probably not 40 years. I don't know if I've ever had a 40-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't think I'd be allowed in the same room as Juan. <laughs> just, yeah. It's like, mean, no, you are too poor to even yeah. breathe in the air. That. <laughs> that was one of the, you know, it really is one of the, the benefits of working in the wine industry is that you get mm-hmm. access to some of these things that I would just never have access to. Otherwise. Yeah. Um, and so I did get to go to like an aged Napa cab tasting nice. one, at one point. And I'm trying to think, I guess 70, I mean, I guess 40 years ago would be 79. Yeah, 79. Mm-hmm. So I might have had something close to that, actually. Wow. And if they're, if they can stand up to it, it's, a, it's amazing. Because mm-hmm. the, the tannins just soften, the fruit develops beautifully, it's it's really, you know, it's not something that I can do all the time, but, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and that's the thing with like some, some of the more famous wine regions where typically you want to age them for as long as you can stand to mm-hmm. are like Barolos in Piedmont in Northern Italy. Mm-hmm. Burgundy and Bordeaux in France, they really just, and it's not that they don't taste great when they're young. Mm-hmm. It's just they they really reach this amazing potential as they age, and mm-hmm. so that's that's what I was thinking about with uh, John Williams and Star Wars. Totally. And we will hear we will hear the final culmination. Yeah. Because this is going to be his last star yes right yeah episode nine will be his final one he is said like he sort of like three trilogies 42 years that's sort of like the that's the the time to buy out yeah you know go out (laughs) while you're on top yeah (laughs) and it's like it's such a complete example of musical storytelling. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I saw an interview with him this week. He's already written 25 minutes of music for uh-huh. it. So he's already working on it. All right, so he's already going. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of, like, culminations, there is, I think, one more moment in The Last mm. Jedi that yes. deserves some comment. Absolutely. And that is sort of the moment of Luke Skywalker's ascension from the material mm-hmm. realm. Mm-hmm. Because I think the moment, I think for a lot of people, when they that really got them emotionally into Star Wars was the binary sunset in A New Hope. Mm, yeah. when Which originally, Williams had written something very different for that moment. Oh, yeah, you can hear it on the special edition soundtrack. It is... A very, I would almost call despairing piece Mm. in a way, which is really interesting. And then Lucas was like, this is not correct. What Mm. I, what I think feels right is the force theme in this Mm -hmm. moment, this hope for something beyond the horizon. Right. And in Luke's final moments, we get one more, he sees one more binary sunset Except this time, instead of looking out over land and sort of desert that where there's lifeless nothing, there is no promise, this time he's looking out over water, sort of like the primordial life. So it's like he, he has gone from death, he has gone from lifeless nothing to life. He's mm. put on like opposite sides of the screen when it yeah. cuts to the close-up of him looking. Right. The colors are even in direct contrast to each other. Mm. So it's, it is really bookending his journey of saying, like, yeah. you went from, like, death to life. Mm. And the life came about because you brought it back. Yeah. And Williams, one last time, returns to the binary sunset queue. And this time after it is left unresolved 40 years in its first conception, he finally concludes it. That's so beautiful and poetic and perfect mm-hmm. and really just emphasizes the how Williams really has been the core of telling this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
it's a, it's we are so lucky to yeah. have gotten this final trilogy out of him. I am so happy about it. I think it's really been some of his finest work in Star Wars. And, mm-hmm. and it's just been such a they've been such great films so far. Mm, I've they've been so much fun. Like so good. Ugh, I can't can't wait for the rise of Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Well, Christopher, this has been just just delightful and so illuminating, really like breaking it down in a way that I had never thought about it before, the music of John Williams. So thank you so much. It was it's been such a pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the show from like those first like Middle Earth Old World Wines oh, series. You. It's been Yeah. Yeah, no thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Of course, of course. And um and speaking of Star Wars, we will definitely be doing a Star Wars dedicated episode, probably series, at some point. So fear not. Fear not, listeners. This is not the only discussion of Star Wars. There will be on Barry. Hell yeah. I know, right? I would be entirely remiss if, <laughs> if it were. But Christopher, uh, is there anything that you would like to plug to tell our listeners about? Yeah, I mean, just, uh, you know, as mentioned up front, we're, I'm the co-creator of a little uh, fiction podcast called Arden. Itch. Oh, so good. <laughs> yeah, a queer rom-com workplace com slash fake true crime mystery uh, starring Wolf 359's own Michelle Agresti. Who has also been on pairing in the Gas Station Wines episode. Yes, yeah, season one is out in its entirety now. We're going to be recording season two this summer. And Yay! It's, uh, it's going to be quite a ride. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Season one is amazing. Go listen to it right now. And you could, uh, I guess, find, uh, find that online at, uh, at ArdenPod or ArdenPodcast.com. And, Perfect. Yeah, and you can find me at, at Crystal86 on Twitter. Awesome. Amazing. Well, Christopher, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you again. It's, it was a delight. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Cheers. Cheers. Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Scherzarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Julia Schifini. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Check out our new merch store on our website at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine. <laughs>